I think compassion is the key. I want to be encouraging and positive and treat others how I would like to be treated. Being able to change someone's life, there is there's just no feeling like it. It's an incredible process. Welcome back to season 12 of Take Flight. I'm your host, Mark Whittle, and this season is all about life lessons. For the next few weeks, we will be hearing the biggest lessons our guests have learned on their journeys. So come the end of the season, we'll have had the most incredibly comprehensive education from experts who are the best in the world at what they do, who have been there, seen it, conquered and returned to tell the story. From entrepreneurs to artists and actors to brain surgeons, we'll hear it all. Subscribe on your platform of choice to be the first to hear new episodes. The guest for episode 117 of the Take Five podcast is none other than Rhiannon Lambert. Rhiannon is a registered nutritionist specializing in weight management, disorder eating, pre and postnatal nutrition, and sports performance. She is the founder of Retrition, the leading private nutritional clinic based in London. And she's also the best-selling author of her book, Renourish, A Simple Way to Eat Well, and the host of the fantastic podcast, Food for Thought. She really is amazing and a leader in the nutritional world who thinks outside the box, like so many of the hugely successful, inspirational guests we've had on this podcast. In today's episode, we discuss the do's and the don'ts of nutrition and how to view our relationship with food. We also discuss Rhiannon's journey to date and learn what drives her every day, what separates her from other nutritionists and what key decisions led to her success. Welcome to Life Lessons from a Nutritionist with Rhiannon Lambert. Enjoy. Rhiannon, welcome to the Take Flight podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, thanks for joining me. I've been really excited to, I mean, there's loads of things I want to talk to you about, but I'm really excited because nutrition is one of the four pillars of performance that we talk about on the podcast. So it's a massive piece of the kind of stuff that our listeners are trying to learn more about. So yeah, thank you so much. Oh, I mean, it's a pleasure. I couldn't agree more. I think nutrition is one of those areas that everybody um, feels emotive about as well because you know it impacts all of us doesn't it on a huge spectrum so it's, it's yeah it's, it's good to have a chat about it yeah no thank you I um I studied exercise science or sport and exercise science at university and nutrition was by far in a way my favorite part of the course um I think on a selfish level because I was, I was playing sport and you can apply everything you learn to yourself to begin with um so yeah I'm interested to hear what inspired you to to lean into nutrition in the first place? Yeah, 100%. I mean, for me, it <laughs> it wasn't your usual typical pathway, I think, into, into looking at nutrition for a career. I, I was in the music industry as a soprano, a singer. So it was a complete, um, complete different genre of work or line of work that I thought I was going into. Um, and at the time, I probably saw nutrition when I was in the music industry. I was very young, I was 17, turning 18. I probably saw it as diet products, if I'm being honest. I thought that health was a special K-bar, um, you know, whatever was in them. It was magazines at the time, um, whatever celebrity diet um, was in the magazines, whatever it took to be, to look to be a product I guess and in, in that industry you are a product I was signed to labels and I was just you know if you're going to make it you've got to look a certain way it's not just about the talent that you have so my, my warped perception of nutrition was really saved when I decided to go and enroll 
um, in a uni degree in nutrition, I think it was a time when everything was a bit backwards. 2008, the economy had crashed and music, um, the record labels were merging. Things were all going a bit crazy in that kind of world. And the genre I was signed to record, classical crossover, wasn't really cool anymore. I don't think anybody ever really wanted to. They had Catherine Jenkins, you know, you've now got Michael Ball and Alfie Bow, who I've actually sung with both of those um, lovely, Mm. lovely guys on stage in, in the past. And you've you've had that genre. It's very popular. You've got the people that are centric to it. And I decided, you know, all my friends were off at uni. They were doing something. They were having fun. I, at this point, was 21. I'd spent several years recording, writing material, and nothing was really happening and going the way I wanted. So I thought, right, I'm going to go to uni and I can still sing alongside. And I rolled in nutrition. I, I think it was because it was such a toxic industry I was in. I had a fascination with it, probably in the wrong way, but equally enrolling and studying it saved my life quite literally and made me a, a happier, healthy individual I am today. That's how I got into it in a very <laughs> condensed way. <laughs> oh, that's unbelievable. I mean, I'd read a little bit about your music career, but yeah, that's amazing to hear. I mean, get slightly sidetracked, but what sort of music did you like growing up then? Oh, well, what I listened to wasn't always what I sung. So I did always love musical theatre. Phantom of the Opera was a big part of my life. I was a very odd child at seven, you know, for my birthday, I went to see the Pride and Prejudice house where the BBC production had filmed it because I was obsessed with Pride and Prejudice and the music and that kind of thing. I I wasn't your average kid. I was listening to Fleetwood Mac, um, Queen, uh evanescence um groups and it was all about vocals actually for me a lot i loved whitney um i think just really really good singer songwriters and vocalists that that was what i loved even from such a young age and i will actually say the spice girls were my just Mm -hmm. my world (laughs) but i think (laughs) there were lots of young girls growing up when i grew up uh, everyone loved the Spice Girls. I yeah. even love the Spice Girls. Yeah, <laughs> they, they are absolute legends. So my music was always quite eclectic, I, I would say, from, from from a young age. But mm. um, I didn't ever know that it was 100% going to be my career. So it's, yeah. But do you know what, though? Because that's fascinating. You know, I know you're saying you're, you're a strange kid growing up with those kind of fascinations and interests, but it's not. It's, it's, it says so much about who you are as an individual and why you are so successful in whatever the field that you chose. Like It sounds to me very much just like it's passion you, you know you knew what you liked at the time and you were just it's kind of obsessive yeah in, in a way and, and I think a lot of the people I speak to are like that so I don't know do you reflect on that I haven't until you've asked me to be honest on this podcast right now it's not something mm-hmm. I um have spent so I'm not asked about the music as much because obviously I'm, I'm known for my nutrition career more so and I was never a cool kid at school I didn't really fit in I just kind of kept myself to myself and I was fairly academic, but not majorly so, especially not in science, which is what I do now. I mean, I hated it at school. So, mm. yeah, I was very focused and I I, lo- I just loved it. I did take part in all the school plays. I was part of a local Amdram group in my town and that they were my crowd. You know, they were my my friends more so than the people I went to school with, to be mm. honest. It's interesting. Like, what, I'm drawing comparisons to my granddad, which might sound a little bit strange. But no, he don't was, tell me. Tell yeah. me. <laughs> he was. Uh, he loved. He was obsessed with music. We've got a bit of a musical gene in our family, um, which went to my auntie. And then I, I love music as well. I never. I never really stuck with playing because I played sports so much. But 
although although music isn't uh, and and the second part of the story is he loved music but he was then a chemist in his career that's what he chose to do oh, yeah wow. so i know that music is seen as an art but there is a science to it as well like how songs work and how things come together like symphonies and stuff so i don't know whether whether that's like, i mean I mean, yeah, I suppose it is. I mean, I never actually had, you know, serious music lessons growing up. And I know a lot of music theory, which I eventually got to do later down the line, is heavily mathematical. Um, mm. And yeah, theoretical, it's music theory. It's um, music is a language in itself that you have to decipher and learn. I suppose if you look at chemistry and molecular level of science, I guess, yeah, there are huge comparisons between the way your brain will think because people separate them. They assume that you've got the left brain, you've got the creative side of the brain and you've got the right brain and the academic and they split. But I think you're right. I think there's definitely a crossover. <laughs> okay, I'll stop asking you about music now, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been quite nice, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I do just, I draw so much from like people, what they're interested in when they're younger. So I just, as soon as you were talking about the music and following that career path, because a lot of Take Flight and this podcast is also about knowing when to go into something else or when to take a leap of faith into a different path and mm. and that's obviously what you did to go and then study nutrition so just quickly before we go further into nutrition where did you study um so i went to roehampton university where i did my undergraduate um which i chose at the time because i was still singing and traveling a lot with the singing so it was in london it was one of the few at the time only five universities in the country did a nutrition course so i was mm. very lucky that i happened to live in putney and i could travel down to roehampton uni or i could walk there or get one bus so that was really the logic behind it at the time and it was a course that meant you were automatically accredited when you graduated so it had recognition on a government level that you would become a associate registered nutritionist once you mm. graduated from that course. So I knew that it was a legit course because I think there is a lot of, um, there are a lot of charlatans mm. in the industry. I'm in as with every industry, I think, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, surprising there's only four nutrition courses in the uk that's crazy well, there, there were five back then now every right. university will have them yeah. i mean 2021 at the time we're recording this episode it it's hugely popular um i feel like no, so many people want to be a nutritionist and maybe it's because that's my echo chamber that's what i'm mm. consuming but it i think it's cool now <laughs> oh it is it's, you know especially like i've just been on your website well it was yesterday but it looks amazing like the food pictures and that that's oh. that's an art in itself as well it's great thank you i do really enjoy that aspect of the job mm. um i mean i mean the food is the reason why i did it and you're right i think food i love music i love food i love all those sorts of creative aspects in life and nutrition does fall into that because it's about enjoyment it's yes there's the science of nutrition which is incredibly important it's the foundations but to build on foundations you've got to have an element of love I think in order mm -hmm. to entice others to believe in what you do as well or to follow a lifestyle that could be helpful they've got to enjoy mm -hmm. it yeah and that love is the highest frequency which attracts people to you when you're sharing whatever that message is that you care about so yeah I think that's amazing um what did people think you know, friends or family, your parents, when you we you told them or shared that you, you know, putting the music on hold for a little bit or, or not as much attention and you're going to go and study nutrition? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a good time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I'd spent such a huge chunk of my life um, chasing this music career. And I remember my dad was extremely supportive, actually. He said, no, it's good to have some kind of academic background. You, know, you can't just rely on the arts and you know, that kind of... As much as I hate that message, 
an element of that is true. It is important, I think, to have a backup in any anything you do, as well as chase your dreams, just to be realistic mm. in a sense that you're protecting yourself, you're protecting your own mental health and your own um, resilience in, in a way, having a backup. But there was so much investment. And at the time I was singing... Um, when I started university, I was asked to join a girl group. So I sung in a quartet where we um, we were still doing performances. I'd go to Singapore for two days or I'd be in Oman for 24 hours and then I'd be flying back and then I'd be going to uni and then I'd have my part-time jobs. So I think they all thought I was a little bit crazy. And the biggest concern mm. was the financial aspect, um, like where are we going to get the money from? Because my family couldn't afford it. Uh, so I had to work work my uni degree completely so I was doing night shifts in the library at the time and I think the main concern was my health you know can you get through this uni degree whilst being signed and doing music whilst working four jobs it was a mm. it was a huge undertake at the time and half my family like I said my father really really supportive I think everyone else was in a bit of shock because all I'd ever said I wanted to do was the music but I'm supported now with it. I mean, one mm. line I remember my current husband, my husband saying now was, um, oh, you know, if you ever have a baby one day, you do know you're going to have to get a proper job. That's what mm. he said back when we first started dating like 10 years ago. And now I'm like, ah, well, look who was right. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my own business now, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he regrets that. You can keep throwing that one at him, can't you? <laughs> I definitely can. And I'm not going to pretend that I don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's so great to hear so I'm interested to know like during that period because you have you would have had so much on I imagine there might have been feelings of overwhelm or anxiety or anything like that but did you feel like particularly called to nutrition because you don't you don't know that you're going to end up as a business founder you don't know that you're going to end up with the massive success that you've had so like no. what was that feeling like um initially I thought I'd made the wrong choice. And I remember having several phone calls and tears because it felt like I was the complete underdog on this course. Not only was I the oldest on the course, even though I was 21, it was full of 18 year olds, you know, that were science geeks and incredibly gifted with numbers. And I just am not, I never, cons I always relied on my natural talent of singing. So I neglected that side of my education a bit because you know, I really struggle at it. I had extra help at school with maths because I was so just not great. <laughs> um, so initially I didn't think I could do it. And you do go in there thinking, how on earth am I going to get through this? But I think part of my musical drive, the challenge, there must have been something about the challenge of being the underdog that really drove me to push at it and mm. keep going. Like I'm not a quitter. Um, and before I knew it, the first year had passed and I'd won the highest achievement award in the year at uni. <laughs> I don't know how, how it happened, but I got a first in the first year and I, I had no science background. So I think those night shifts, to be honest, in the library was so helpful because I would spend the night studying and catching up and speaking to other students coming in and out of the library, even though I was knackered. I think I was just absorbing and I was mm. so immersed in the course. I had zero social life. I couldn't care less about going out to parties or drinking or anything people do at uni. I was there to work and I was there to study. And then suddenly everything changed. And I, I did to answer the question, I don't know how to answer your question, but no. that's what happened. <laughs> no, you are answering the question. I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying just listening because 
I didn't do that at uni. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually, originally, I wanted to go into, to be a sports lawyer. So I was like, I'll do sport because it'll be fun yeah. <laughs> for three years. And then I'll do the conversion. But yeah. I, I ultimately just ended up playing football for the uni team as much as possible and then going out a lot. But to hear that you had that level of commitment and dedication to the studies during your time at university. And I guess like from what it sounds like, you know, financially and stuff, you you kind of pushed into that. But yeah. I think that's really good because I struggled getting into the real world in the first year or two with with shifting my approach to things because I had been very nonchalant and, you know, it's all about having fun and, and that isn't mm. just accepted in 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 the commercial world and the business world as much. So um, um, I mean, I guess there was also an element of I'm a singer and my voice is, has always been so sacred to me. So the socialising aspect was never something from a younger age that I'd always put as a top priority. So from such a young age, I think I had a different mindset. I think most people, they go off to uni, you know, you embrace that. But I'm conscious of being in a loud room and not speaking correctly with my diaphragmatic breathing or working with my vocal cords in the right way. If I lose my voice and I lose out on money that I would get get from the gig that was that weekend um so my mindset was alcohol is really bad for my singing voice disastrous mm. being in loud environments not great lack of sleep not great so I had this complete different um my teenage years were spent I think being older than my years because mm -hmm. that's the way that I just had to be I think um but I, I I've, I'm envious of people that had that time like you sent at uni you know I think I wasn't a child for very long. You know, I think you grow up very fast. And I, I would encourage most people to go to university to not do what I did if they if they can in their life and their life plan and have more fun and go out and do that because that is an element perhaps mm. I wish I'd done more of. Or is there a balance between what I did and what you did? Maybe? Yeah, well, in between would be perfect, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would. But what you're saying there is self-awareness you know when you're saying you understood that alcohol was bad for your voice you understood that sleep wasn't going to improve your performance yeah. but I think when we we're younger we just turn a blind eye to that and I've su certainly suffered with that so yeah I, know, I, I think it's great that you had that at a young age yeah I, I, I guess um it well it hasn't hindered me has it thus far? <laughs> no so Rhiannon what does your week look like today like you do so many things you know you know you mentioned they're a business owner a nutritionist anyway so working one-to-one -one with people you're also an, an author and a podcaster so what what does a typical week look like and then if you could after that answer like what, what do you think separates you from other people in your space oh gosh um <laughs> typical week and I'm sure you feel the same that there isn't really a typical week in my life um I mean at the moment I am writing the next book which is out December 2021 so I do have a bit of structure in that I know that on two days a week um I will spend a lot of time working on the book to meet deadlines that I've got coming up for submission but now I've got my son. So my my little wonderful angel is 13 months old now. And wow. uh, yeah, because I had him over lockdown, um, life has been quite difficult, if I'm being honest, but it's made me build a bit of a structure. So I'm able to work two days a week where I have some childcare and I squeeze in all of the admin, all of the writing, everything into those two two days a week. And then the other days I'm acting as business owner. So I'm fielding off calls, managing my team, um, mentoring as well, because I mentor a few of my nutritionists in the clinic. Um, I'm also then recording in certain hours where my husband takes my son out or he's asleep. I'm doing all my work when he has his two hour nap in the afternoon. Mm. 
I guess because there are so many fingers in different pies. We're launching a new business at the end of this year. Like I said, we've got the book. Um, I work late in the evenings, if I'm being honest. So a typical day is a very early start doing mum things, mm-hmm. um, getting as much business stuff done in two to three hours in the afternoon, which I never would have dreamt would have been physically possible before having him. I, I don't. Mm. I used to fill all my days and I'd be running around London, left, right and centre, would never stop meeting, meeting, meeting. But now I'm far more efficient at fitting everything into a window of time. And I'm very strict with that now. So in a way, it's helped me be concise. And then I work mm. late into the evenings on my laptop to about 10, 10.30 and I call it a day. That's typical, typical day, mm. week kind of with me. You're filling me with hope. I have a 11 month old daughter, um, yeah. and and I've fallen into the same, or fallen yeah. into, or create created the same structure. I don't know, but yeah, yeah I, you know, when she goes to bed, dinner, and then yeah. back on the laptop, yeah. and that's kind of the, those sacred hours that I get to just. I know she's asleep, and I yeah. can kind of just get my stuff done. It's like you can't. I also think you can't. Uh, I'm sure parents listening will know you can't relax until they're asleep. Mm. It's almost you feel so happy when they take a nap or they go to sleep because you know they're mm. going to be happy, and then you're able. <laughs> yeah, you can just crack on. But you also yeah. there's a part of you that wants to be around them all the time. And that's been the biggest struggle for me is that I have actually hated relinquishing. So you're also lockdown parent. We share a lot in mm. common there. And relinquishing control or relinquishing looking after my little one, I find quite difficult because I just want to be around him. I want to mm. see everything. Um, yeah. So that's quite a pull at the moment that I'm coming to grips with a little bit. And I suppose that we've been fortunate that because of lockdown, we have seen most and we're actually doing settling in sessions for my daughter now to go to nursery and yeah. she goes ne- next week and I'm absolutely oh. gutted to think she's going to be there four days a week as well. Yeah. And it's like, oh, but my wife wants to go back to work and get exactly. her identity back. So there's a lot to be said as well. I think, um, I mean, it's, it's slightly off topic for, for this podcast, but I do think that a lot more needs to be done to support um, parents with childcare in the UK and to enable women to still work because um, it's a huge emotional pull as much as a biological one and a financial pressure that it's, it's really, really difficult for women just having a baby the pressures that they've got to do it all it's hard and I mm. and that's a whole other conversation I'm sure it is yeah we could do a full episode could, on that couldn't we we? I, I've seen it firsthand and I, yeah. I couldn't agree more so yeah um I'd love to know whether you feel or what you know whether you wake up each day and you feel driven towards a particular purpose or is there sort of kind of like a do you have a mantra or do you have a, a goal in mind daily that's kind of driving you So I'm one of those people that just doesn't stop thinking about ideas and things I want to achieve next. Um, I wouldn't say I've ever, I'm not a five-year plan person. I've never had one of those. Things have just happened. And it's been like that my entire life. Even in the music industry, things just happen. And so I guess I'm manifesting to a certain level that I'm really confident if I say I want to do something or I knew I was going to have the next book. It was just a matter of when it would happen or when the book deal would come. Mm I kind of see it in that way and then it seems to happen so it's it's not really a ma- mantra I repeat every day but I will see something and think right make a note quickly and I've got this team whatsapp retrition team whatsapp group and I quickly pop things in there I'm like let's do this this is a good idea oh I like the look of that recipe I want to develop it in this way let's do this mm. that happens 24 7 for me there's always something I see that we can be doing more of or an improvement on the website that I'll notice oh gosh that needs updating there's always something 
that has to be achieved or has to be changed and projected forwards every day. I'm sure mm. you feel exactly the same. It's just constant. I do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I quite like it though. You've, and it's Ooh. hard when you, if I have a holiday or a break and stuff and getting back into that mindset is like, it's yeah. quite sometimes. Even having a holiday is quite difficult because I think when you are immersed in the way, like nutrition is almost like my first baby and I don't really know how to take a break from it properly. Mm. I don't think I ever have fully maybe I've had two or three days fully switching off nutrition especially now I've got my wider team it's helped but in the first few years you are you can't really because it's you've just got to keep momentum going I mm. think yeah yeah it's really really interesting I, I think that we need breaks but yes yeah, you know I get to that kind of like two days in and I'm like okay I'm ready to go back now <laughs> yeah yeah there's always something isn't there you think you should be you should be doing um, but that's definitely something to be worked on as well I look forward to having proper family holidays now and I mm. I do look forward to switching off yeah no you're absolutely right you said something earlier which sort of caught my attention when you you spoke about how you think everyone's doing nutrition now but maybe that's just because it's in your sphere and that's what you're giving attention to so when you're thinking about that kind of obsessive, you know, ideas and things you're thinking about, I wonder whether you have a particular favorite for the things that you do, whether it's writing or podcasting or, or the clinic itself that, that, that maybe draws more ideas to you than, than one of the others. Um, I, I know what I, I tend to prefer. I prefer whatever my headspace is in that day, but media work is definitely something I find easier and requires less thought. And I think it's just because of my singing days. I love podcasting and like having a conversation with you now. Mm. And you know, that that's a highlight of my day because to me, this is almost um, less taxing than searching through research articles to write a book mm. where I'm spending hours just um, staring at statistics um which is a complete different i wouldn't say that's my most inspiring time however <laughs> when i'm writing the book or the books and look and researching that's when i get ideas for content i'm like oh of course this stat suggested that i don't know in the usa they children under the age of five are still not consuming enough fiber or they're consuming too much sugar i should do a post on childhood nutrition on sugar tomorrow or next week let's pop that mm. in um, or oh, this is an updated stat and i'm constantly updating my knowledge and whenever i do so as a health professional you have to do cpd continuing professional development and i have to tick off x amount of hours every year to remain a registered nutritionist. So you've got to clock up, I think, a minimum of 30 hours extra study. And I'm constantly learning still. And when I'm learning, I feel inspired. Uh, I think you've got to keep evolving. And I love doing new courses and becoming immersed in a different field of nutrition I haven't looked at for a year or two and going back down that path because you do get more creative vibes uh, going going from that but but the media stuff I, I do love I, I mean I, I love it when I get to do a news feature or I recorded a tv show recently for channel four and just doing getting out the house and doing that is, is fun mm. yeah yeah no I think it sounds so exciting and and, and everything that you've done video wise I, you did a TED talk as well I watched that yeah. the other day it's great oh thank you that's that's a, that's a while ago now I think if I were to do that again there were a few things I definitely do differently but um yeah that was a huge opportunity actually and those kind of things stay around on the internet forever so you've got to you've got mm. to get it right it's not going anywhere 
No, you spoke incredibly well. I was, I was really impressed. And it was funny because when it panned to the different camera, you can see like the big clock counting down. Because what is it, 18 minutes you get? Yeah, as a yeah. You, and you, you can't, you don't have a prompt. You've got to memorize a script. So for me, it was like memorizing a monologue or something. You, you've mm-hmm. got to know exactly what you're saying. And you can't see the screen behind you. So when you click, you've just got to have faith that the right slide is behind you when you're oh, speaking. Wow. <laughs> That's what was worse mm-hmm. for me was thinking, oh God, if I click twice by accident when you're talking and you're thinking of all these things that you wouldn't expect, you'd be thinking thinking of when you're actually performing and speaking your TED talk. Yeah, that's great insight because I think a lot of people who listen to this will watch TED Talks and they won't realise how much goes into it. So. Oh, it's so much rehearsing like, over again and again and again to get your key words, your key phrases. Um, yeah, and you can't see your audience, of course, because of the lighting. So you're just, it's just, I guess it's an act, it's a performance in a way. Mm. I'm interested to know, like, before we get into the last one, before we get into the nutrition stuff, is there any similarities across everything you do from speaking to working with clients to podcasting and writing? Like, is there a, is there something that you use for all of those in order to allow yourself to perform better? Um, I think compassion is the key. I started my business client centered, you know, client focused. It was the clinic that really built up very, very quickly for me. And I love working one-to-one with people, being able to change someone's life. There is no, there's just no feeling like it. It's an incredible Mm -hmm. process, but it's also equally very psychologically demanding. Um, But I think one thing that's helped carry me through is I had a very different approach to my nutrition and my clinic. I'm, I am a very empathetic person by nature. I like to get a perhaps a bit more personal than most health professionals would. I mean, you do have to have a barrier and a line, but I, I want to be encouraging and positive and treat others how I would like to be treated. And that should, in my line of work, I think, carry through whatever medium you are on, whether it's free or written work, you're, you're speaking on camera. You, you have to mean what you say because it's, it's healthcare. It's, we're talking about people's health. I, I, I'm directly, whatever I say will impact somebody to some level or some subconscious level. I think those words, compassion and empathy, are, are really, really key to what we do in nutrition. And whenever I hire a new member of staff and we go through training on how I want them to be to represent me in the clinic, it's very much this caring approach. This person is under your care for that full first initial hour. I want them leaving the room feeling like they can do this. That's how we want them to leave, feeling like they've got a lot out of that and they're looking forward to working on something. That's so great to hear because a lot of those people coming in to see you will be like desperately searching for help. Yeah, 100%. And, we, we, you know, we're often the last, we're the last hope. People don't think, oh, I'm going to invest my finances in my nutrition. I'm going to try everything mm. else before I have to go down that avenue. So that, you know, they've tried a hell of a lot of stuff before they come to us. And it mm. really is up to us to pick up the pieces. How can we, so what do you do with your staff then? How can we be more empathetic? How can we be more compassionate? Um, I mean, a lot of it, so I enrolled and I'm a master practitioner um, with psychological interventions to disordered eating. I enrolled in a um, practitioner which took me over, I think it was two years long doing that after I'd done my master's degree as well. But it changed the way that I worked in my clinic and it actually helped my clinic become more successful And it helped me reach people because it was having that conversation, knowing how to speak to clients, knowing how to listen, when Mm. to sit back and listen, what language to use when things are a bit tough. You don't get that training in nutrition. You learn about the science. You learn about what to 
what to eat, there's the science of the body, how your immune system is functioning. You're not told how to be, you're not given any psychological training and how to deal with these scenarios. You're, you're technically a therapist for an hour in a room with somebody, yet you're not given those skills. So I took it upon myself to enroll and, and complete that course. And I then train my staff with a lot of the learnings I've had. And I've encouraged actually most of them to book in and do the same course. So I make sure they're trained in the same way and that we all receive incredible guidance because if you don't know how to speak to somebody you're not going to get the best out of them and they're not going to feel comfortable I don't think in wanting to trust you with their their life really mm, that's so good to hear so when I asked earlier about what separates you I think that's that's it like going going the extra mile first of all but really having that holistic view and a holistic approach because our diet does impact not just our body but our mind so much yeah. and you've, you've done that yeah I mean I, I guess yeah, I don't think, um, I think the reason nutrition may be, yeah, the clinic is successful is because nobody else was really approaching nutrition in that way when I started or they were, but we hadn't really heard of it or it was probably immensely up there in private healthcare. It's a bit out of reach for many people. I wanted nutrition to be accessible and I wasn't scared to give away free information over social media. And I think that's where a lot of people, because when I started on social media, there weren't really any health professionals. In fact, I was frowned upon in my association for nutrition, I was nearly struck off their books because they didn't know what to do with me. Like, what do you do with this person that's under regulation, that's speaking out about things in the public eye? Sometimes things will get misquoted in newspapers, which is not good, but it's probably doing more help than harm having a voice. And it took a long time to convince health professionals to get on social media. And now there's so many of them, which is mm. wonderful, but it's something I campaigned for for ages to get registered nutritionists and dietitians out there saying things online <laughs> where's that come from like your ability to speak in the face of adversity to go against the norm to do that do things differently like where, where do you think that's come from I, I think part of it was I didn't really absorb that that's what I was doing <laughs> I, I don't mm. think I'd really registered that I was I was being as controversial as perhaps I was back in the time um I just think I, I, I've got a lot of resilience from the music industry, the ups and the lows that I went through. Um, that you're, you're spoken to in such a blunt manner sometimes when you're auditioning for a role or you're up there with all these cameras on you and they're scrutinizing how tall you are, what you look like, your body size, your shape, your weight, your, what you wear, your fashion sense. Um, you get used to being under scrutiny to a certain, you become extremely resilient. Um, mm. And I, I guess this wasn't anywhere near as tough as the days I'd had before in the music industry. <laughs> this just seemed like um, something I had to ride out, really. Mm, that's great. So the experience beforehand taught you taught you how to deal with it. Yeah. So Rihanna, let's let's talk about food. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> you've seen so many people and helped so many people, and I'd just love to give some some direct pieces of advice that people can take from this episode to to maybe impact the way that they see food or change the way they eat. So obviously everyone's unique and there's not necessarily a one size fits all, but a really easy question to start off with. But what, what are the kind of basic like, sort of fundamentals that we should be taking into consideration with how we, how we approach food? Um, golden question, of course. I um, wouldn't expect anything less from you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think the ultimate bit of advice would be, to try and think of your nutrition 
at a much deeper level is far more complex than just numbers in and numbers out. It's not about just calories. It's about so much more. Um, it's about feeding and fueling the little microorganisms like your gut bacteria. Two kilos of what you weigh is bacteria that sits within your gut, the gut microbiota. Um, and a lot of those interactions and signals that happen inside your body to your brain start within your gut. So if you're going to eat a better diet, it's not just to result in how you eat, how you look, it's how you feel and how you're going to age and how your body's going to adapt, how your immune system is going to adapt to threats in the future. So try and think of your plate as being balanced for you, meaning the right ratio of carbohydrates for you, proteins, and lots of fruit and veg and color and a little bit of oil or fat. Just, but find that ratio that works for you, but have all those food groups in there. Um, a lot of people on the internet will say the answer is fasting or it's low carb or it's high protein. And the answer is there is no sexy cell. None of it is going to be a miracle or sustainable for the vast majority of people. Yes, somebody may thrive off a low carb diet, but the majority of people aren't getting enough fiber and they're gonna get more fiber if they eat more carbohydrates. And then suddenly they're going to be creating more happy hormone serotonin, which comes from a lot of carbohydrate. They'll feel better and then their gut bacteria is eating a lot of good diversity and then their bacteria is sending messages that prevents them from becoming depressed, that prevents them from becoming anxious, that can help them fight off illness, that helps strengthen their immune system because 70% of that lives in the gut. So it's such a big question, but ultimately eat well because eating well is really going, your body's just going to thank you and it's not going to thank you for following these dietary trends that appear left, right and center. Yeah, it's. I think the thing that keeps coming up is that you have to just build a lifestyle that you can rely on 365 days yeah. of the year not not do a six-week diet or a yeah. you know five seven uh five two or whatever the thing is you know 100 percent, and enjoy things in moderation there is no harm in occasionally having a slice of carrot cake for lunch mm. because that's all you fancied that day it's not going to derail anything and sugar is is not actually the devil in the way that people portrayed it to be you just don't want a lot of it you can have it, mm. but just don't have excess. And it, it, it sounds really boring. And that's the problem with actual nutritional science that works is that it's not as sexy. So a lot of people don't buy into it. Mm. I heard a great metaphor about sugar the other day, which if you like it, you can steal it. Okay, Ooh, um, go for it. <laughs> it was if you imagine our, our physical bodies as a mobile phone, right? And you charge the mobile phone in the same way we intake sugar. Mm -hmm. The moment you tip over that 100%, all of that sugar is turning to fat, which a lot of people don't understand. And that's why our fat stores are increased when we're intaking a lot of, of these too sugars. Much sugar. Mm, too much sugar. So effectively, it depends on what type of sugar. So if you're looking at sugar as sucrose, so the white table mm -hmm. sugar, if you do have excess, um, it will be stored in a particular, not necessarily straight to adipose tissue or fats, but it may be around the organs, around the liver, that sort of thing. But you need to be having such an excess amount of it for that storage to happen because most of the time you will utilize it as energy unless you've gone over that threshold. But then if you're looking at fructose, which is fruit sugar, that's only metabolized within the liver. Hmm. So it's not going to meet the same pathway that you think. Fruit isn't bad for you. And I think a lot of people get fruit sugars confused with white sugar. And yeah. then lactose from dairy, they get that confused. So when you're thinking of, sugar 
think free sugars, so added sugars into the diet. So a carrot cake has definitely got a lot of free sugars in it. Whereas if you're going to eat, I'm trying to think of a good example, if you're going to just eat a fruit salad, um, the only thing that would be extra would be if you had a drizzle of honey on it because the fruit itself is going to be utilized in the body. The vitamins and minerals mm. are going to be used, the fiber is going to be used, the liver is going to metabolize that well. But if you are eating, yeah, a lot of cake and biscuits and all the extras, that's when we get the problems. But you can have small amounts, like you said, in the mobile phone. Just don't overcharge it. Don't mm. don't let it stay on overnight. Mm. <laughs> I'm glad you fa- fact-checked me on that one as well. <laughs> I, just, I just didn't want people going away no, thinking, yeah. yeah, sorry. But it was a great analogy. It really is. Just to people no. clear, it gets confusing. Honestly, around it, that makes so much sense because – I've also heard people who who like turn away from eating fruit and stuff because they think it's yeah. sugar and it's unhealthy, but there's a distinction between the two. Um, can I ask you a selfish question, which I, I hope other people will get something from because yeah, yeah. I think there is a kind of, there's a, there's a general uh, outcome I want from the question, but it's also hopefully going to be selfish for me. Okay. Um, so I had chronic fatigue when I first moved back from playing football in America and, and I had that for probably six or seven years and actually had a relapse in January where I just felt really crap for about six weeks again. So diet is obviously a thing that I can turn to to try to improve that and all I really want as a goal is to feel more energy and have a boosted immune system so how can I do that through my diet so obviously if you were one of my clients I would want to delve in to the whole health history of the chronic fatigue and clearly what you've been through traveling to another country all the stresses of everything the pressures that were upon you when you moved away I would also be looking at how your diet had changed living over there versus over here, the way you'd eat the food, social interaction around the food. Um, There's all those elements to consider. And of course, there's different microbes in foods over in America compared to foods over in the UK. Whatever country you live within, you'll be getting different bacteria. But in order to feel good and get enough energy, diet is only one piece of the puzzle. It is something you can do, but it's important to remember there's a lot of psychological interaction there with burnout and with fatigue in general. Mm. But to get the ultimate combination, it's just consistency over a long period of time and getting those healthy fats in just as much as those carbs and the fruits and the vegetables. So I would ask, do you get enough omega-3 within your diet? Because we know that that creates cell membranes. So each cell has an outer coating, a kind of cushioning, um, and that is predominantly made of these healthy fats. And in our brain, 60% of our brain is made up of these omega-3 DHA fatty acids that we need. And we know that these also may play a role in preventing neurodegenerative diseases, things like Alzheimer's, dementia as well. And if you're going through uh, fatigue, I'd be looking also at your blood analysis. So I don't want to look at your eye levels, your B12 I'd want to check that everything's optimal on the micronutrient front, get a lot of healthy fats in just as much as the carbohydrates and the balance plate analogy. Because men can actually have up to two portions of oily fish a week and women one. And if you don't eat fish, then you can get vegan supplementation in the form of algae DHA, which is really important. I actually think omega-3 is one of those nutrients that are not dis- it's not discussed enough. Mm. I'm really pleased you brought up omega-3 because... One of the things I wanted to ask you about was the, do we call them conspiracies or these, yeah, these yeah. ideas about, yeah. you know, seaspiracy is one yes. where we're talking about yeah. fish and then and everyone suddenly says, I don't want to eat fish anymore. And, know. you know, veganism is a trend and then, you know, all these diets. So how seriously should we take these and, and people who are on restricted diets, like how should they view what they eat? 
It's difficult. And I don't like seeing veganism being turned into a trend, but it does, you know, and it's a lifestyle choice. And it's a hugely ethical one for so many people and should be respected as such. But it does require a hell of a lot of nutritional education to do it and to live healthily and optimally. And I do think sustainability wise, we should all be reducing our meat consumption and our fish. But the problem with this message, especially in the UK, is that most people don't even get one portion of fish a week, let alone the two they're meant to be getting for optimal health status. Mm. And then the people we're talking about probably can't afford supplementation either to spend a lot of money on an omega-3 supplement every single week. So we've got this huge discrepancy, and this is a socioeconomic matter as well, where we've got poverty divides in in the UK, not meeting public health food messages, just as much as something we're trying to tackle with sustainability. And it, it's a huge problem. Um, and that's why I get a bit frustrated with these fatty restrictive diets coming out because it comes from a place of privilege a lot of time that is not understood and you can cause a lot of harm there's a lot of malnutrition that can happen very quickly from go embarking upon veganism overnight without doing it properly your iodine is a key nutrient that you get from dairy and fish and that involves thyroid regulation and cognition in your brain and if you suddenly cut these things out you're unlikely to get that anywhere else apart from supplementation the same with the omega-3 and most people don't get it anyway from fish and they don't know to take an algae supplement. Um, I'm afraid avocados, nuts and seeds are not going to cut it because it takes so much longer to convert into the amount you need inside the body. You'd have to be eating so much of it that it would actually be an unhealthy level that you'd consume just to get the omega-3 inside the body. So it is a really complex matter, which is partly why I don't work in government public health legislation mm. because I would find it incredibly stressful. Um, mm. But if people are going plant-based, I think it's a wonderful way to live. And I do encourage it if it's done with the education. I actually have an ebook, A Simple Way to Eat Plant-Based, where I cover mm. all of these points. And I hope to launch something at the end of the year, which will help people if they need it with this. But it's tough. Um, and it comes from a privilege debate again. So it's a complete mm. separate issue not just even nutritionally. Mm -hmm. Well, I, yeah, I'm pleased you mentioned the ebook as well because you've got so many resources that people can go and download yes. and, and check out. Because and free ones it, too. You know, I give free mm. information all the time on social media about these points and blogs on the Retrition website. Yeah, amazing, which I'll certainly send people over there because it is complex. C yeah. Can I ask just to get something tangible yes. to, for people to take away? I think the best way to do this is because it is complex and there's so much to learn about what is your diet? Like, what do you eat? Because I think then that could be a gold standard that we can all aspire to. Well, th this is the problem. This, this is the problem. I tend not to disclose what I eat in a day or what I do, because mm. I worry people will see it as a gold standard. But then mm. my needs are so different to so many other people. What I would say, as a general rule of thumb, is anybody that wants to try a plant-based lifestyle, I would encourage it because it actually means just reducing your meat consumption, animal consumption, not cutting it out. And I think that's the best way if you're looking to make a difference and be very healthy. It will probably encourage you to get more plant-based vegetables in your diet. You'll eat more veg automatically, hopefully, more fruit automatically. You'll experiment with different carbohydrates. You'll try beans and pulses as a protein at lunch or tofu instead of going to meat or fish. If you do eat fish, get your one portion a week of oily fish in. Make sure you get that. 
but it doesn't mean you have to give anything up. I wouldn't encourage anybody if they didn't want to, to suddenly go vegan because it's not the answer. We know from the literature that people just need to reduce consumption and that's the best thing they could do. Um, mm. So rather than me saying exactly what I do, I do live a plant-based lifestyle, which means I reduce consumption of a lot of things. But health comes first and you've got to do what works for you. Don't be guilt-tripped into thinking mm. that, you know, if, if that's what you need every day to be a happy, healthy individual, you do that. But um, yeah, don't compare yourself to others online, I think. Yeah, amazing, amazing advice. And it's like what you said earlier with your clients, right? Having compassion for them, but it's, it's having compassion for ourselves and, and oh, how we eat. Yeah, 100%. You know, there are days where even as a nutritionist, you know, especially when I just had Zachary, I would just live off sugar sometimes. I would mm. have like a pack of white chocolate buttons at lunch and I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so tired. And I'm <laughs> feeding, yeah. I'm up all night long and it's just... I do it too. No one is superhuman. Everybody goes through blips, ups and downs, no matter what you see online. Nothing is perfect all the time. Yeah. Rena, how are you for time? Sort of realise we're, we're at 45 minutes I'm now. I'm doing good. I've probably got another five. Okay, cool. Past. Well, yeah. let, let me, um, I'll do the last three and then when we say goodbye, yeah. I'll just, I'll just, I'll, I'll stop the recording and then I'll say goodbye properly. Okay. Um, <laughs> um Rhiannon, thank you so much for that. So we do the same three questions at the end of every episode. Um, quick fire questions. So the first one is, is there anything you've discovered or come across recently that you're particularly excited about? I would say, I think I'm going to go on a foodie one on this. Please. Um, there's definitely a lot of different meat replacement options now for people that are looking at changing and a lot of different soy-based ones. And soy has a really bad rep, whereas actually the nutritional science is really strong that it's really good for you and people don't consume enough. So I'm really excited about the fact that you can get every type of barbecue food for the summer in a plant-based option. It's from burgers, sausages, all of it, even different flavors. You can get caramelized onion cheeseburgers that are plant-based instead. So that's a really cheesy nutritional thing, but I'm very excited about the fact there are so many options for people and it helps people that are dairy free too. You know, you can get vegan cauliflower cheese and things now and M&S mm. have an amazing plant-based range and so many incre incredible brands out there now that I think it's very exciting space. No, that's a great one. I also want to encourage people to listen to your podcast with, I can't remember his name, there's a doctor where you discussed soy milk. Yes, um, um, Dr. Mark Messina, he mm. is the leading researcher in the world at the moment and did the largest cohort in March 2021 on soy. He is absolutely incredible. So we have a whole episode on soy on Food for Thought, which, mm. yeah, definitely listen to that. Yeah, I enjoyed it because I've, I recently went dairy and gluten-free to try yeah. and help with the energy. So yeah. I've been having soy milk with gluten-free oats like every morning pretty much. Yeah. So. There you go. Um, <laughs> yeah. The next of these is if you could encourage every listener to incorporate one habit in their day, what would it be? What would that habit be? Drink more water. And it's just so boring again, but people don't drink enough water. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think anybody really does unless you are, you've got a mission and you know, you probably know being a sports, you know, sports person, you know how essential it is. Water could be the reason you feel you have a low mood, you feel a bit depressed. It's it's not just about how you perform, it affects your concentration and how you feel. 
it's incredibly, incredibly important. And also to meet any goals you have. It could even be a weight management goal. Water will make a huge difference. Mm, I love that. I recently did um, a metabolic testing, uh, physiological testing, and the whole kind of sweat test and, and yeah. understanding where I am on that scale. So I take an electrolyte most days, especially yeah. if I'm exercising. So I don't know, do you, do you recommend people take electrolytes? Um, only if they are exercising a lot. I don't think yeah. for the majority, unless you're out there sweating a hell of a lot, then it's probably not necessary to replace salts and things. But if you do sweat a lot and you are one of those people, it might definitely be worth looking at. <laughs> mm, okay, thank you. <laughs> I need to come and see you, don't I? I need to come and see you. I think you do. Come and look in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we talked a lot about this already, but the last question is, if you could nail down one trait that's within you that allowed you to have the success that you've had to date what would that trait be I think um do you know before this podcast I probably would have just said kindness but actually after speaking with you I'd say it was resilience hmm. um yeah I don't often have time to reflect upon myself like I have done in this podcast I don't ever really speak about myself so much um because I'm interviewing other people. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think I think it would be resilience. Um, you've, you've got to take the bad with the good. No matter how many no's you get, it, you've just got to keep persevering, I think. Mm. I've got, a, a, well, I have a few notes up here, quotes and stuff. One of them is keep swinging. It's what Babe Ruth said as a, as a the baseball player. Just say keep swinging, because whenever you get those no's, which are inevitable, yeah. just keep swinging. There will be more no's than yeses in life, but it's those yeses that you get that makes such a huge difference. It is, it is. Swing away. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> or as my wife said, are you saying keep swimming? You know, on their yeah, uh, finding, finding Dory. glory. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, but it, it works as well. <laughs> I'm such a Disney fan. I should have just said what, what made my success. Just yeah, just watch Disney and live, live your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I actually couldn't agree more. There yeah. it is. That's the sound bite. <laughs> <laughs> Rhiannon, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. We've got so much out of that 50 minutes. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm such an admirer of all you're doing. And I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. So there it is, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much, Rhiannon, for all the amazing advice. It can sometimes be a messy field, the nutritional world. And I hope that brought some clarity today. As Brianna mentioned, she has some incredible free resources as well that you can find through her Instagram page at Retrition, that's R-H-I-T-R-I-T-O-N. But beside the nutritional advice, her story is so inspiring. She took a leap of faith away from something she was passionate about in music and became one of the faces of nutrition in the UK. You can hear how passionate she is. She's making such a difference for people who are really suffering and I'm a huge admirer of all she's doing. Next week on the podcast, I cannot wait to share with you a very special episode with a guest who goes by the name of Angus McDonald. Angus is a professional footballer who was diagnosed with bowel cancer at the age of 26. His story is outstanding and I can't wait for you to hear it. But until then, stay positive, stay motivated and take flight.